Amen. Good morning, Hope Bible Church Niagara. So glad to be with you. Uh, my name is Ted. I'm the pastor at Hope a Church in Mississauga, a partner church, a member of the Great Commission Collective together uh, with your church family. So thankful to have the opportunity to uh, open God's Word here uh, together. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to First. Corinthians chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and find verse 18. The title for today's message is, All Things Are Yours. All Things Are Yours. Have you ever put up your Christmas lights, got them well connected to your eaves trough or to your roof or wrapped around a tree without bothering to check if the lights worked? Have you ever gambled a little bit on the highway when the gas light comes on and you think, I can just get, you know, 10 more kilometers, 15 more, what's 25 more kilometers? I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure we can make it a little bit further. Uh, sometimes we can trick ourselves or deceive ourselves or not really uh, give ourselves an opportunity to, to access the power that is necessary. The, the church at Corinth was a church that, that got started in Acts chapter 18 with a great deal of power. Uh, Paul was there sharing the gospel, and uh, in the synagogue, he got kicked out of the synagogue, moved right next door, it says in Acts chapter 18, and then the ruler of the synagogue, literally the guy who kicked Paul out a few days uh, prior, he ends up becoming a Christian. There was lots of power there. But then the church at Corinth got obsessed with another form of power. They got concerned about political and social power. They were obsessed with the manifestations of certain spiritual gifts, and they had, they had lost connection with where the true power is in the gospel. I'm going to read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, all the way down to chapter 4, verse 5. It says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they should be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Each one will receive his commendation from God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you by the power of the Spirit. 
we come to you in the name that we just sung about, the name that is above all names, the name that is powerful, the name of Jesus. And Lord, we pray that you would use your living and active word right now to speak to us and to transform us. Lord, we know that there are things that we need to learn, and so we ask that you would teach us. And God, we, we know that there are spiritual truths that we simply don't see, so we ask that you would reveal them to us. And Lord, we know that we are people who need to grow and change and transform. And so God, I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would transform us. Lord, I pray that you would be with my mouth. I pray that I would speak only that which is sound doctrine, only that which would build up the body of Christ. And Lord, I pray that as your word is taught, that people would not merely hear my voice, but that they would hear your voice speaking through your living and active word. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We might have noticed Paul gives uh, three prohibitions in this text. The first one is quite uh, obvious. In verse 18, it says, let no one deceive himself. And then in verse 21, he says, let no one boast in men. And then down in chapter 4, in verse 5, he says, do not pronounce judgment before the time. There's three prohibitions, three commandments, three do not statements that Paul gives to this church that had lost connection to the power of God and who began to pursue power in other areas. And so uh, what, I, what I want to do today is to allow those three do not statements to, to form our outline this morning and to kind of warn us that, that if we are to do these things that Paul is telling us not to do, we're, we're taking gas out of our car. We're unplugging the lights from the socket. That when we do these things, we hinder the true power, the power of God from working in our lives and working in the church. Verse 18 begins by saying, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. If you're taking notes today, jot this down. Don't be deceived by worldly wisdom. Don't be deceived by worldly wisdom. Now, hopefully you're not too easily deceived. Uh, hopefully you have a little bit of street smarts, you know, that when the voicemail comes from the talking robot from Canada Revenue Agency telling you that you need to call this number immediately and all you need to do is type in your social insurance number and your address, hopefully you're not deceived by that. Hopefully you don't respond to the Nigerian prince who sends you the email saying he wants to transfer millions of dollars, all you have to do is give him your bank account. Hopefully you're not deceived by those things. Hopefully you aren't deceived by false teachers on television or on the radio or in the media. Hopefully you're not deceived. But Paul's concern here is don't deceive yourself. The person that we really need to be skeptical about is ourselves. That 
when we get it in our mind that there's something that we want to do or something that we want to see happen, we can jump through all kinds of hermeneutical hoops to, to try to interpret the Bible to justify what we want to see happen. We can search on a, a crossway.org or in our concordance and we can try to find some verse that will prove whatever point. We can have logic diagrams laid out for why I should get my will and forgetting about God's will. Paul says, don't, don't deceive yourself. Don't be deceived. And then he says, if any of you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Paul says the first step to becoming wise is to admit that you're not. And the main deception that we trick ourselves into thinking is that we no longer need to learn. That when we're in an argument with someone or in a disagreement with someone, that their turn to talk is really just your time to prepare what you're going to say next. When someone else is talking, even if it's an opposite point of view from yours, that's your time to listen and to learn. Don't be deceived into thinking that you have nothing to learn from someone else. Paul says, if you want to become wise, step one is to admit that you have something to learn. Admit that you are a fool. And certainly don't think that you're wise according to the wisdom of this world. Paul says the wisdom of this world is folly with God. Now from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 2, verse 6, Paul had been talking about the wisdom of God and the wisdom of this world and how they don't, they don't line up with one another. In, in verse 19... He goes on to say, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. Paul here is quoting from Job chapter 5, verse 13, one of Job's friends, Eliphaz. Now, when all of these tragedies happened to Job, three of Job's friends came and sat with him. Job was mourning and was grieving, and his friends sat with him in silence for seven days. Now, if the book of Job ended there... The book of Job would have been a great book. And his friends would have done a great job. Because when our friends are suffering, all they really need is for us to be present. Sometimes we think, well, what do I say? Or what do I, I don't know how to explain. Or, or I need to quote a verse. Listen, when Job's friends got off track, when Job's friends stopped focusing on being present and started focusing on being preachers, and then they started to explain to Job why these bad things were happening. And they were explaining to him, these bad things are happening to you because, because you're a bad person. And so in Job chapter 5, verse 13, Eliphaz says that God catches the wise in their craftiness. Now, if you read the whole book of Job, you know God says Eliphaz got it wrong. Eliphaz got it wrong about Job but he got it right about God. God does catch the wise in their craftiness. Eliphaz made a true statement about God, but a wrong conclusion about Job, assuming that he was crafty, that he was, uh, was, was wicked like, the, like those in the world. Then verse 20, it says, again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. 
the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise. That's a quote from Psalm 94, verse 11. The temptation that the church at Corinth was facing is very similar to the temptations that we face in the church today. In Corinth, Corinth was a, was a Roman city in a Greek area, so they're influenced by ancient Greek culture and the current Roman culture. And so they had all of these sort of predetermined philosophies, which was sort of like a package of describing how the world works, whether it was Plato's package or Aristotle's package or Socrates' package. You had these different, an explanation of where we came from and what's the meaning of life and how should we treat one another and what is life all about. There's all of these predetermined packages. And the temptation for the church at Corinth was to say, the Bible, the gospel, Jesus fits in with Socrates. It fits in with Aristotle. It fits in with Plato. We're, we're just as smart. We're just as cool. We're just as savvy. We're just as slick as these other philosophies. And so they were trying to morph the message of Jesus. They were trying to adapt the gospel to fit in with what was popular in the world today. That's the same thing with the church. Humanistic evolutionary biology is a package. It's a way of describing where we came from and what the world is about and how we should treat one another. It's a package. And some sometimes well-meaning Christians try to take the book of Genesis and cram it in to fit within that, that package of wisdom. There's also, uh, very, it's very prevalent in our world, in schools, in media, in HR departments, in corporations. There's a, there's a package for uh, expressive individualism and, and what, that, what that means for, for, for gender and for sexuality. And some Christians are saying, well, we can fit the Bible into, into you can't fit the Bible into that package. Or there are, there's a package right now that's very, that talks about oppression and power and, and how those things relate to one another. And again, people are trying to take the gospel and fit it within that package. They're trying to take the wisdom of this world and say the Bible fits with that. But Paul says the wisdom of this world is folly to God. And so as Christians, our, our aim is not to try, you can't put the gospel in a box. It doesn't fit within the world's systems. So we need to be very careful not to be deceived by worldly wisdom. And then the, the, the second prohibition that he gives, in verse 21 he says, So let no one boast in men. So here's the second prohibition. Don't divide over Christian leaders. If you're taking notes today, don't divide over Christian leaders. He says, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. So Paul here mentions three major leaders in the church. He says, let no one boast in men. These were the men that different people were boasting about. Some people were boasting about Paul. 
Some people were on Paul's side. Paul was the one who planted the church there. He was the original church planter. And there was this group of people who said, back in the day when Paul was here, th- those were the glory days of our church. And if we could only get back to the days when, when Paul was here and when he was the leader and when he was in charge, so there was sort of a Paul group, a pro-Paul group. And then there was an Apollos group. In Acts chapter 18, Paul left Corinth when he first planted there. And they sent Apollos. Now, Apollos was a a newer believer, but he was an amazing communicator, it says. And Priscilla and Aquila had to take him aside and sort of straighten out his theology a little bit. But the guy, like, thundered from the pulpit. And he was very, very eloquent. And so there were some people who were saying, no, we're on the Apollo side. Paul was kind of timid and, and not that great of a speaker. We need someone who's just going to really encourage us and challenge us from the Word of God. So there was Paul people, and there were Apollos people. And then there were Cephas people. Now, Cephas, that's, that's Peter. Peter has too many names in the Bible, right? You got Simon, Cephas, Peter. So these, these, these were like the OG people. These were like the, forget about when the church got started in Corinth. I was there in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Tongues of fire, people speaking in different languages. Cephas gets up to speak and 3,000 people become Christians on that day. Everyone's getting baptized. You all should listen to me because I'm from the Paul group. So the church at Corinth, if you read chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3, you see that the church at Corinth was divided into these three groups. You had the Paul group, you had the Apollos group, and you had the Cephas group. And Paul says, you you shouldn't be dividing over, like, we're all trying to follow Jesus. What was Paul about, ultimately? What was Peter about, ultimately? What was Apollos about, ultimately? He was about... They were all about Jesus. And then he says, here's why. Look back at verse 21. All things are yours. It's not about you belonging to Paul or this person belonging to Apollos or that person belonging to Peter or Cephas. All things are yours. They all belong to you. Paul says we don't need to be divided into these, into these groups. You know, Pentecostals could learn a few things from Presbyterians. And vice versa. People with a more traditional liturgical approach to worship, a more formal approach to worship, could learn from people who have a more informal approach to worship. And vice versa. Paul is saying, lift up your eyes. Stop focusing on worldly wisdom and stop focusing on on what particular leader you gravitate towards. And focus on Jesus because when you focus on Jesus, you realize that all things are yours. And in this list, he starts with the three leaders, which would have been at the top of everyone's mind, Paul and Apollos and Cephas. But then the list just gets a little bit out of control. Like, look at what he says next. Paul, Apollos, Cephas, and then it says, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future. Paul's saying, there's some bigger things at stake here. There are some bigger things that actually belong to us as Christians 
than whatever Christian leader we happen to be following or podcasting at the present time. He says, all are yours at the end of verse 22. Then look at verse 23. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. How is it that the world and the present and the future and life and death, how is it that these things can belong to us? Well, the answer is right there in verse 23. It's because we are Christ's and Christ is God's. Christ the Son belongs to God the Father. They've eternally existed in a father-son relationship. The son belongs to the father. The son is the heir. Everything that belongs to the father belongs to the son. And then it says that we belong to Christ. Verse 22, you are Christ's. You see, what we often don't understand when we think about the gospel is that there was a two-way transaction that took place. When Christ went to the cross... All of our sin went on him. He suffered and died as, uh, to, to pay the, pen, the penalty, the punishment that all of us deserve. He was our substitute. It's penal substitutionary atonement. He suffered and died. He was telling the Father, blame me. It was me who lied. It was me who cheated. Punish me. Jesus took the blame. The transaction was our sin went on to Jesus. That's what we so often think about when we celebrate the Lord's Supper on Good Friday. When we read the Gospels, we so often think about the transaction of our sin being put on Christ. But it was not just a one-way transaction. That as Christ suffers and dies on the cross and is risen again, he's the firstborn from the dead. The inheritance belongs to him. And on the cross, it is true that Jesus was treated the way that we all deserve to be treated as sinners. He was punished and he was separated from the Father. He was treated the way that all of us deserve to be treated as sinners. That's part one. But the second part is that so that we could be treated the way he deserves to be treated as a son. That we have now been written into the will, adopted into the family, that we are sons and daughters of God, and so all things are ours. Everything that belongs to Christ belongs to us. Paul, Apollo, Cephas, the world, life, death, the present, and the future, all are ours. They all belong to us. Life or death, the life that we're living, the challenges that we face, It all belongs to us. Death, with everything that has happened in the last two and a half years or so, and all of the challenges, and all of the argument, and all of the disagreeing, and all of the reading, and all of the changing, and all of the adapting, there was one thing that I wish the church just could have communicated a little bit more clearly, that Christians are not afraid to die. We're not afraid to die. And guys, we we blew it. We were so focused on arguing with the government or arguing about this vaccine or about that policy or whatever and whether you're afraid if the virus is going to kill you or the vaccine is going to kill you or the government's going to kill you. We're not supposed to be afraid to die. We're supposed to live fearless lives. And we all looked scared. We did. Life belongs to us. Death, Death is just a door. It's just a door to the, to, to, 
everything that God has in store for us. And yet, and yet we've got so sidetracked, so disconnected from the power of the gospel that we forgot that life and death, everything belongs to us, the present or the future. Whatever, whatever is right in front of us right now belongs to us. And whatever is going to happen in the future, belong, all of these things belong to us. All are yours. You are Christ's. And Christ is God's. It all belongs to us. A parallel verse, uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 32 to 39 says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He gave us his son. And because he gave us his son, we are sons and daughters. And so he's given us all things, life, death, even the rulers who rule over us, spiritual and governmental. It all belongs to us. One of the best books that, I ever, that I've read in the last 10 years is written by a, a British guy named Andrew Wilson. He's a charismatic Anglican, remember, we all have something to learn from others. And uh, this is a short little book, short little chapters that just talks about things like farm animals and mountains and salt and cities and family. These short little chapters, these short little meditations about all just a, a variety of everyday, seemingly mundane things. And how the gospel shows us that they all belong to us. And they all have significance and meaning and have something to teach us about God. God of all things. Then Paul says in verse 1, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Paul here uses two terms to describe what it means to be an elder or a pastor or a leader in a church family. He says, servants and stewards. First off, Christian leaders are supposed to be servants. This is a summary of how Paul talks about what a Christian leader is in the rest of the book. He begins... In chapter 3, when he starts addressing how the church was divided between Paul and Apollos and Peter, he says, no, we're all servants. We're all diakonos, where the word deacon comes from, which are the people who wait on tables. And he was trying to emphasize their insignificance. He's saying, focus on Jesus, not on us. Then when he, he used the farming analogy, he about God, Paul planting and Apollos watering, but God giving the growth, he, he said, we're fellow workers, we're farmhands, we're working together to harvest the crop, and that emphasized their unity. 
Then he used that famous building illustration of wood, hay, and straw, and precious stones, and it all being burned up. And, and he used the, the analogy that Christian leaders are builders, and there's a sense of accountability that's there. And now he uses it, the word servant. It's translated servant in English, but it's a different word in Greek. It's hyperites. Hyper means lower. Ites means a rower, a lower rower, or a lower oarsman. You know those big Roman ships like Ben-Hur where you had the multiple levels of people rowing? A, a, a hyperites is the lowest rower. And in Paul's day and age, that, that, that word meant kind of like an executive assistant. Picture in the Hallmark movie, you know, the Hallmark movie always starts with the successful woman before she moves to the, back to the small town and meets the boy. She's the successful woman, right? And she gets off the, it's in every Hallmark movie. If you're a good husband, you'll watch these with your wife. She, she gets off the elevator, right? And who's waiting there? the executive assistant, and she's got her clipboard, and she's got the coffee, and she says, here's what your appointments are, right? That's, that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, I'm just, like, I'm just like an assistant. And then he uses the word steward, which is oiknamos, which, which is a, a ruler of a household, someone who's responsible. This is how we think about biblical stewardship, how we handle not our money, but God's money. And a a, a pastor, an elder, this isn't the pastor's church. It's God's church. It isn't the elder's church. It doesn't belong to, to, to him or to them. It belongs to God. I mean... I'm, I'm not that old, but uh, this isn't my first lap around the track. And I think we've all seen what happens when pastors lose sight of their role as servants and stewards. I think we've all seen very dramatically and very publicly how things fall apart with pastor as master. And I was pretty enamored with that idea. And there were a number of pastors, celebrity pastors that I would follow, that I would flock to, that I tried to imitate and emulate. And and as I reflect on that, it seemed more about everyone else at the church was just there to somehow support the ministry of one person. It's kind of like NASCAR. You got the driver and everyone else is kind of scrambling around the car trying to, so the person can make the magic happen, right? That's such a backwards way to do church. The the role of the pastor, the teacher, the elder is to equip the saints to do the work of ministry, not the other way around. But we don't want the pendulum to swing too far because sometimes what can happen in church is, okay, our pastor is not the master. Our pastor has to be a servant. So then does that mean the congregation is the master? And that the pastors and the elders are just supposed to go by the whims of whatever. No, no. Who, whose church are we stewarding? Who's, whose church are we serving? Who are we serving? The master is Jesus. And again, the answer to so many of our problems is just to get our eyes off of what's right in front of us and get our eyes onto Jesus. Then it says that a a steward in verse 2 is required to be found faithful. 
That's, that's the definition of a successful church leader. That's what you're looking for. That's what I appreciate so much about Ross. That's what I appreciate about so much about the elders who are seeking to lead you here at Hope Church. Is there isn't a flashiness, but there is a faithfulness. And, and, and that's what you need to pray for. Pray that they would continue to remain faithful. This has not been an easy season to be leading a church family. But pray that they would remain faithful. So don't be deceived by worldly wisdom. Don't divide over Christian leaders. And then lastly, don't depend on human judgment. Don't depend on human judgment. In verse 3, Paul says, But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. I wish that I could say what Paul said there. It's a small thing for me to be judged by you. Too often, what other people think about me is a big deal to me. How my neighbors think I maintain my lawn, how people think that I look, how my children behave, how well I preach or lead, how fast I run, all of these things can be a big deal to me. How can we get, how can we be like Paul? He says, with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you. And then he says, or any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. Verse four, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. There you go. You see, Paul isn't going with the self-esteem movement by saying, I don't care what you think about me. I think I'm awesome. Paul says, I don't even trust my own opinion about myself. It's the Lord who judges me. And then he says, this is really important, verse 5, Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Christians are supposed to judge. Don't get the wrong idea here. But Paul says, don't judge before the time. And don't judge what only God can judge, which is described right here in verse 5. The things now hidden in darkness. Things like the purposes of the heart. What are Christians told to judge? I mean, keep reading in chapter 5. There's a guy who's uh, having relations with his stepmother. And Paul says, kick him out of the church. Because the action was wrong. The action was clearly wrong. Christians are supposed to judge actions. Christians are not supposed to judge motivation and the purposes of the heart. When, when we cross the line into God's territory of judgment, it's when we stop judging by simply saying, you did this and it was wrong. And when we start to say things like, you did this, which is innocuous, which is, which is benign, it's not right or it's not wrong, but I know why you did it and that makes it wrong. You understand what I'm saying? That's when we cross the line. 
Remember when David was being anointed king and Samuel went over to Jesse's house and then uh, Eliab, the first king or the first uh, candidate for king was brought forward. And this is what God said uh, to Samuel. He said, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And then the next chapter, David shows up at the battlefield and he's delivering the lunches that his dad told him to deliver. And he entrusted the sheep with someone else. And he's talking to his brothers and to Saul and he's going to go fight in Goliath. Look at what Eliab says. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David and said, Why have you come down, and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. David's like, I just brought the sandwiches. But Eliab, he jumped to conclude, he assumed my one pastor friend calls it, we commit a suicide. We see what someone does and we assume that we know why they did it. A couple of other cross-references, Romans 2 verse 16 uh, tells us that on that day, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Revelation 2 23, Jesus says, I am he who searches mind and heart. So don't pronounce, we don't know the end of the story. Things may not be going well for someone now, but they could turn it around. And we don't know the whole story. We don't know what's happening in the person's heart. So don't judge prematurely. And then there's something really, this passage ends on such a strange note in verse 5. It says, then each one will receive his commendation from God. Commendation is not a word we use in everyday uh, English. I think recommendation, you make a recommendation, like if there's a restaurant you really like, to commend means to praise. To recommend means you praise it again and again, and you want other people to praise it, so you recommend it to them. You praise it in front of them. So, commendation from God? Praise from God? I mean, all of us are expecting to get to heaven, and there will be lots of praise. We all expect the praise will come from us to him. But it says here that, that each one will receive his praise. C.S. Lewis calls this, in one of the most brilliant essays C.S. Lewis ever written, an essay called The Weight of Glory. He calls this, 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 this weight that no human being could, could barely hand. To hear the word of the master say, well done, good and faithful servant. He talks about how, you know, over in Hope Kids, there's a little kid right now, and, and she's built a tower of three Duplos. And the leader says, wow, that's a really great tower, right? And the little girl just, she, she's just, she doesn't know what to do. She feels so proud that this grown-up has looked at the tower and, 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 and has praised it. And yes, as that child gets older and as the sinful nature begins to form and all of those things, yeah, absolutely, it gets corrupted into the fear of man and people-pleasing, but there's, there's something wrong with that, but there's also something pure about that. C.S. Lewis also says, like, even a dog just can't get enough of hearing, oh, you're a good boy, oh, you're a good boy, aren't you? That we're all wired somehow, and, and the fear of man and people-pleasing is a distortion of something that's good. Something that we're all made for, to, to receive the commendation from God. 
to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Do you want to hear that? I want to hear that. To ensure that we hear that, there's three things that we got to avoid. We've got to make sure that we're not deceived by worldly wisdom. We've got to make sure that we aren't dividing over Christian leaders. And we've got to make sure that we aren't depending on human judgment, but waiting for that ultimate judgment from God. Let's bow our heads and pray together.